Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata, from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston-Pitt. In an increasingly uncertain world, it's easy to feel, well, intimidated by rapid developments and unexpected changes of fortune. Yes, we can learn from experience and and try to make sure we are armed against challenges ahead of us. But often, the best preparation available to us is to be adaptable as possible, to make ourselves resilient to circumstance. It is a little over a year since we spoke to a man who truly embodies this idea. Fugro's own hydrographic director, Mark Sinclair, he told us about his attempt to sail around the world without modern instruments, all by himself. The endeavour is known as the Golden Globe Race, a single-handed, unassisted, non-stop, around-the-world race in traditional sailing vessels using traditional means. We've shared links to that episode in the show notes, but but in summary, Mark, known as in sailing circles as Captain Coconut, did not quite make it. Slowed by an infestation of barnacles and almost out of water, he had to return to his home in Adelaide, South Australia, and never finished the 2018 Golden Globe Race. But it was not the end for Mark and his 10.4 metre sloop, appropriately called Coconut. There is a special category in the race for people who have to put into port just once, named after the legendary sailor Francis Chichester, and he was going for it. There is also nothing in the rules about a time limit. So, I spoke to Mark again in November 2021 as he prepared to finish his journey. By travelling from Australia to France, the starting line of the 2022 Golden Globe Race. Yes, Mark intended to embrace fortune and attempt one and a half trips around the world to finish his journey. Mark, how are your preparations going? Slowly, um, I've got a, I, I printed out a calendar and I wrote the days in reverse order from, or from, from the day I was going to depart, cross each one off, 50 days, 45 days. You don't really need to worry about it too much. And I was sort of concentrating on the hard job, so it wasn't really that important. I think there's three days to go now. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm thinking, actually, I really need a serious list now of those remaining important things. But it's it's dead funny, and and I've got quite a few people sort of helping me. I got a phone call this afternoon, and I forgot all about this, but it was a lady that sort of came down to the yacht club saying, "Oh, and the coconut was out out of the water." and being painted and whatever. And she she goes, oh, look, I've been following you. It's really interesting. How can I help? And I thought, um, oh, that's really hard. What can I do? I said, do you know what I really need? The most important thing on the last trip, I ran out of fresh provisions and the only thing I had was lemons. So where can I get a load of really good lemons that haven't got pips in them and whatever that are going to be freshly picked last for a long time. So she went off and researched that and she gave me a call today and the farm are picking them for me tomorrow. They're picking a hundred (laughs) lemons. Because when everything else goes bad, what lasts is lemons. Ah, they are all you had left in a tricky spot. Did they not rely on them for scurvy and such in the olden days? That's right. And I just got lemons last time. I think I got a dozen just to have lemons. 
But when I ran out of everything, and I wasn't even eating them, they were just sitting there. And I thought, I just had a, a, you know, a hunger for, for something fresh. And I just got one of those lemons and I just peeled it like an orange, had really thick skin, and I just ate it. And I thought, that was fantastic. And here, the problem was, was two weeks later, I'd eaten them all. And so what I thought was, I'll tell you what I need is a lot more of these because when everything else runs out, that's the one thing that's left. And sticking with that theme, what other preparations are you making? Specifically things that you'll be doing differently this time. Two things that thwarted me last time was running out of water and being bedeviled by barnacles. So running out of water. So what I've done is I, last time I didn't have a proper water bladder in the keel and I ended up with about 330 litres of water on board. Now I've got 490 litres. I've put a dedicated, I put a pattern in the keel. I worked out exactly the size and shape. I got someone to build me a bladder out of this really solid PVC with pipe connections and whatever. Got built, put it in there, filled it up, made sure all the pipes weren't um, uh, squashed. So that means I've got a full 200 litres there. And I've got additional tanks, uh, containers inside. So I've got 50% more water. So the issue here is I've only got half a lap and last time I caught about 100 litres, I had 330 on board, so I had 430. I'm starting with 490. So I don't even have an issue with water getting to France. What I have an issue is, is learning to manage water and collect water better. So I've got to use, I've got a water problem on my next trip, not on this one. And I've got to use this one to, if you like, polish my water collection skills. So your initial half circumnavigation will not stretch your water supplies, but the second full circumnavigation still necessitates collecting drinking water as you go. I think one of the problems in the last race was because we started early in the year and we arrived in the Southern Ocean, basically in late August, early September, it was still in early spring. And so I was very conservative. I stayed away from high latitudes and navigated across in the 30s, high 30s, eventually getting to 40, south. And I think had I have gone further south, I would have collected more rain. So I think I was too conservative. But for the 2022 race, you're, you're due to begin later in the year. This new race is actually starting um, later in the year, starting in September, not the 31st of Ju The 1st of July was the last one. We're fast starting on the 4th of September. So this is starting later, so I don't have that problem, and so I can push a bit further south. And what about the barnacles? Last time you used anti-foul paint, of course. I call it my barnacle debacle. And, um, and I think... It wasn't that the paint was no good. The pro problem is, is I'm preparing a round-the-world race from Adelaide, and the race starts in Europe. So basically, we prepared the boat, and we anti-fouled it beautifully, and it was put in a cradle, and it was put on a ship. So it was then, you know, we, we painted it, and it was probably uh, six weeks before it went on the ship, and the ship took 42 days to go from Adelaide to London, and then it went on a, a truck, down to Plymouth and it sat at Plymouth for two months before I got there. Then it got put in the water and then I prepared and I sailed to France. So the, 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 the boat was clean and it looked precise and, 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 and in good condition, but quite clearly it wasn't. You know, it's been through the Red Sea, been in the baking sun, been on, on trucks and in yards and whatever. So it wasn't optimal. And when, when, you know, clearly I had these gooseneck barnacles that were hanging off that slowed me down. Clearly it was a matter of preparation. Now, a number of people had barnacle uh, um, issues, but clearly I didn't approach it. You know, in, in a thing of this magnitude, you really need to have it perfect before you go, not adequate. So this, you know, really uh, gave me an opportunity for a new approach here. So I've had a debacle. What can I do right there's a product called Copper Coat that some people love and some people hate, and it's actually got quite 
a, um, a lot of preparation required. And what it is, it's these little copper spheres that are in this epoxy. And you paint it on, you mix them in, it's two kilos of spheres per litre of paint. Two kilograms of copper per litre. That's a lot of copper. I've got 12 litres, that's so got 24 kilos of copper spheres. So you mix it in and you roll it on. And then about an hour later, before it goes completely dry, you roll the next one on and you roll the next one on. And you've got five coats of this. So it's this one thick epoxy barrier with these copper spheres all the way through. And then before it completely cures, you actually uh, abrade it with, um, with pads and you expose the copper. So what you actually have is this, this it look, it's like copper sheathing on an old sailing ship. You've got this, these copper granules embedded in epoxy that basically are exposed. And that turns into copper sulfate. And the, the marine organisms don't like copper sulfate. The beautiful part of it is it's environmentally sound because it's just copper. They don't like it. You're not shedding and whatever. It's just there. It's quite inert. Um, and it's supposed to last for 10 to 15 years. What it requires is a bit of a wipe down occasionally to re-expose the copper if you get any sort of fur on it. But they've got um, pieces of copper in the marina here that have been there for 10, 15 years that are absolutely clear. You still need to inspect the boat anyway from time to time. But so this approach, hopefully, um, it was an opportunity to get it right. It required a lot of work because I had to sandblast all the old paint off and then do high build epoxy and then put uh, and then sand it and then um, this copper coat. So it's now got this and um, everyone's watching to see how I go. Look, the, um, the clip around the world fleet use it. So, you know, it, it really works well. But the application is quite tricky to get right. And I think um, you've got to go through the process properly. And hopefully we've done that. And hopefully I, uh, I won't have uh, a barnacle debacle this time around. Hopefully no debacles at all. Now, can I ask you, now that you've done the race once, well, half done it once, you've got, a, you've got the advantage of having some sense of what the real challenges are. Is there anything you now fear more than you did on your first attempt? I think I, um, I think I fear Cape Horn, and I think you'd be bad not to fear Cape Horn. But I didn't do it last time, and so what that means is I've had three years to brood over that because that's the next bit. But rather than start ship the yacht back to France and start from France, I want to start from here because this is what it's all about, unless you can do this bit. So what I've done is like climbing to Everest base camp, but going around Cape Horn is like going to the top of Everest. This is the really hard bit. But look, I think the boat is well prepared and I think I'm well prepared. Obviously you don't control all the unknowns and there's always, you know, those uh, unexpected events and you know, you may get injured or you may you know, get rolled by a big wave or something like that. But all things being equal, I think I'm pretty well, I'm as well prepared as anyone can be not having done it before. And so therefore, I think it, it's, uh, and, and look, the boat's well prepared. I'm well prepared. And uh, if I can't get around, subject to, you know, being unlucky, well, then no one will be able to get around. For the benefit of those of us who don't sail, can you explain why rounding Cape Horn, the southern tip of, of South America, is considered so dangerous? Basically, when you, you, you sail from the, the North Atlantic and cross the doldrums into the South Atlantic and you're sailing in the trade winds. And we're out of the hurricane season, so you may have winds of varying strength, but you um, in, invariably you're out of really severe storms. Once you enter the Southern Ocean, you come around the bottom of Africa, you come around the bottom of Australia, the bottom of New Zealand, and then you go across the Pacific and around the bottom of Cape Horn. 
in general, the weather, the, the worst weather is at the higher latitudes, the polar latitudes. So you can manage your weather risk to a degree by whatever latitude you choose. If you choose 35 south, 40 south, you're on the quieter side. As you push it, they call the roaring 40s and the, and, 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 and the howling 50s and the screaming 60s. So that's all sailing ship terminology. So when you get from the 40s to the 50s, and these were in big ships, the weather gets more and more severe. So you can, you can monitor that risk by choosing your latitude. But you have to go around Cape Horn. There's no hiding. You have to go to 56 and a half degrees south. Cape Horn comes down. It's like the spine of South America with the Andes. And you've got the Antarctic Peninsula coming up, meeting the two, and you've got Drake Passage in between. So you've got the winds running around the world. You've got the seas running around the world, being funneled through this between the Antarctic Peninsula and the Andes coming down in South America and this shoal area, restricted area, with gales, potentially ice. Um, um, and it was, it was where, it's like the, the sailing ship's graveyard. So it really is, if you like, it's the Everest of sailing. And um, it, 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 it's treacherous. And, you know, and, and the problem is, is that it's not a matter of you duck around. You, when, you, when you go from 50 south in the Pacific around to 56 south and come back up to 50 south in the, um, in the Atlantic, you know, that's over a thousand nautical miles. You know, you're down there for a couple of weeks. And so, you, you know, you'll, you'll confront bad weather. And it's all about managing that. Do you take any books to while away the time or inspire you while you're, while you're out there? My favourite novel is Moby Dick, and um, that's quite a, a big read. And um, and I've, I've read that a number of times, and I know it know it quite well. I read The Hobbit as a kid before uh, before the movies came out. I remember after year twelve, I read the Layout in the Sun and read The Hobbit. And um, so I might take sorry Lord of the Rings. So I might take those again. And I've got some other you know Erskine Childers, Riddle of the Sands type of stuff. Um, um, it's all pretty boring, isn't it? Riddle of the Sands, Moby Dick. Well, they're all adventure novels. Very appropriate, especially The White Whale. Well, Mo Moby Dick is all about obsession, really, isn't it? It's an adventure, but it's an obsession. This obsession with this guy, with this whale. And to a, it's not that sailing around the world's an obsession, but I'll tell you, preparing the boat becomes a bit of an obsession because you've just got to get it right. So I've been tinkering for the last three years since I've been Adelaide working, just doing little things. So I'm far better prepared, I think, than I was previously. Know the boat a lot better, know all the equipment a lot better, I've optimised everything. I haven't done a lot of sailing, but um, I've got plenty of that to come. So I should be well prepared for the next race. Are you feeling fully prepared then after these three years of obsession? Are you ready to go? To be honest, I do wake up in the night. So maybe my mind's going around thinking about things. I think, I think it'll be, and once I start, I've got to get out of the gulf here and get through Backstairs Passage, which will be a bit of a, keep you busy for 24 hours because there's shipping and navigation and whatever. I think once I'm clear of Kangaroo Island and I've got some sea room and I'm heading south, I think I'll then reflect that it's begun. Up to then, it's a bit of a merry-go-round and, and the passage of time and it will just happen. I suppose all that is left is to, is to wish you fair winds and following seas. Well, that, yeah, that, could, be, that could be the title of the thing, couldn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. It has a bit of a ring to it. Mark left Adelaide on the 5th of December 2021. And the only contact with the wider world he had while at sea was a regular safety call with the CEO of the Golden Globe race, Don McIntyre, who we also spoke to in, in the previous podcast. Now, 
Captain Coconut's calls were always the most popular of the races. And, and we have been given access to some of this audio. This first clip is, is as Mark approaches the formidable Cape Horn. <laughs> G'day, gee, this brings back a, this brings back a few memories, Mark. How are you? Where are you? And what's happening? I've been uh, I departed from Adelaide on the fifth uh, of December. Two months have gone by. About uh, six hundred miles from Diego Ramirez, uh, it is to the uh, southeast of it. So I'm expecting to get there. And how's everything going? Like, uh, how's the boat? You know, and uh, uh, I know there's some heavy weather coming, but how's the boat? Strong winds, and um, I think going to get worse. So as as it intensifies and goes round to the north, I'll um, I'll head a bit further south um, and get in the latitude of um, um, the Horn or a bit to the south and wait wait for it to pass through. I'm expecting. I'm expecting 40 knots in the next couple of days. And so you're in a, actually a good position, uh, you know, closing in on the horn. You're actually uh, doing quite well. So no no damage on the boat, like, um, and how's your uh, how's your food going? How are you feeling? Yeah, no, no, no damage to the boat. Everything's working well. Um, um, a bird flew into my um, wind indicator on the top of the mast, so that's all bent up. So um, I've got a bit of chucks on the back today at the moment. Um, um, but everything else is uh, is good. Um, food, I've um, still got some um, about, um, what, 20 lemons and a sweet potato, but uh, all, the, all the rest of the fruit went long ago. The cabbage was really good. Yeah, but uh, no, everything, everything's fine. Um, it's, a, it's a little damp in uh, uh, down below by virtue of, you know, being at 47 south for two months and now being at 53 south. But, um, you know, everything's fine. Everything's working. No, no damage. Um, I'm in uh, good health. I'm... Um, I'm just very careful to try and get around this next week and uh, not come to grief with the um, with the big weather coming uh, from the northwest. Yeah, right. So you so so you excited to be out there? Like, I mean, the, the horn is a big challenge for you in terms of an objective. Well, to be honest, I'm I'm a bit concerned about the weather over the next two days. So that's that's hanging over my head like the sword of Damocles. And um, but I think it's quite manageable. Anything you want to want to tell people that are following? You know, that this is their first chance to hear you for a while. Yeah, that's right. So uh, yeah, no, no. Look, it's all um, it's all going uh, going well. Um, really looking forward to warming up. So uh, really looking forward to turning left and warming up. So yeah, look, it's a really big milestone. And the, the Southern Ocean is interminable, and um, it'll be really great. But uh, no, it's been I've, I've had um, I've had a pretty good run, and uh, I've just got to be a little cautious in the uh, in the next um, in the next uh, few days, and then um, then then it should be um, fun to, uh, to get around. And as Mark approached the Cape, the weather deteriorated and contact was only re-established on the other side. Yes, yeah, so Mark, good to hear from you. Your track has been down. <laughs> right, OK. Uh, well, I'll put that on the damage report list. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's just another one, over. Yeah, great. Well, look, we've been, we get better weather reports than you, maybe, but, uh, you know, it's been very impressive what you've been doing so far. Uh, so, so good to hear from you, certainly. And uh, yeah, tell us a bit about it. We, you, we thought you were getting 70, 80 knots last night. I was coming out of Lemaire Strait. I had to go through Lemaire. I had no choice because I, and I couldn't get around the end of um, uh, Island and there's overfalls and everything. So I ran through Lemaire and that was really good. 
I mean, uh, you know, when you just waited and then, you know, hit through the straight and stuff. Um, but, yeah, so what about the other storms? How's the boat now? How's Coconut? Oh, we lost him. We lost him. Good to hear from him, though. So Mark made it through the Cape, and we next catch up with him sailing in more agreeable conditions. Hello, hello, it's Don here. Good morning, Captain Coconut from somewhere in the South Atlantic. Yeah, exactly. I see you're uh, getting close to the equator. It must be getting warm now. Yeah, well, I haven't had any clothes on for a couple of weeks now, so um, yeah, yeah so the, uh, the temperature certainly picks up quite quickly uh, after you come out of the roaring 40s. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so what's the sailing been like and how's the boat? Uh, it's been a little frustrating because I um I keep thinking I'm going to break into the um into the southeast trades, but I've been um packing back and forth with uh, northerlies, northeasterlies. Oh, I've had northerlies for the last week actually, and um, I haven't really been going much anywhere. And um, the boat's hobby horsing a bit because um, there's a bit of a northeasterly sea that builds up. You know, it's sort of like Force three to four, and four is enough to build up a bit of a sea, and then you're in force three, and you know you can't really get any momentum because the stern's on one wave and the bow's on the other. So I'm just struggling to get out of here, and I'm trying to push a bit further east. I'm going quite nicely now, actually, but uh, yeah, I just need to get into the uh, into the southeasterlies, and uh, or at least easterlies, but I'm, I'm still pushing northerlies. Uh, you're reflecting back on the Southern Ocean experience in Cape Horn now and thinking, oh, wow, I'm glad it's behind me, or is it just uh, turning into a good memory now? You know what I mean? Yeah, look, whenever, I, whenever I'm complaining and thinking about, oh, I'm not making very good progress or whatever, I think, well, I, I at least don't have the anxiety that I had down in the Southern Ocean. And to be honest with you, there was a fair bit of anxiety yeah, because yeah. you you, you, you'd have you'd, ha, you'd have a, um, a, um, a gale or a storm descending on you, and no sooner was it through, and two days later you'd have another one. So there was just when you when I was lined up on Cape Horn, there was no reprieve. So but the, the, the anxiety meters way down. So at the moment, you know, if I'm not going anywhere, well, I've got to be somewhere. I just happen to be here, plugging along. But yeah, it's slow progress, eh? Oh, yeah, this South Atlantic is interminable. It's huge. Interestingly, just after we last spoke, they had quite a large killer whale. An orca come over for a sniff. And he um, he came up sort of alongside and then um, went under the bow and then, and then went down to the quarter and came up. And he slowed down on the quarter and he, he was eyeing me. He was just he was, he was keeping an eye on me. Anyway, he hung around. I got the SJ cam out, but I didn't get anything. But then, anyway, um, about um, half an hour later, the whole family came past. And they were, um, about, uh, oh, probably 10 or 20 of them. They, they only came to say 100 metres. He, he was right up alongside. Um, and he was big. He was really big. That's and cool. um, it was interesting. You got the family on, on film, but the, the problem is, is they're a bit far away. Like, I, I, 
to the viewfinder. And I, you can see they're there, but it's, it's not David Attenborough stuff. But uh, anyway. I look forward to seeing you soon up here then. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a cool, dull day today, but it was brilliant yesterday, and we had a big uh, entrance conference, which was a lot of fun. So uh, we're all thinking of you at the time. So um, good to chat. And it uh, sounds like all is good for now. Mark, welcome to Europe. Thanks, John. It's uh, a relief to be here, frankly. Let's talk about the obvious first. I do want to know about how your journey was. I want to know when you arrived. I want to know if there was a party. But but first, I'm seeing a man who looks completely different. You, you look as if you've lost several kilograms. You're tanned. Well, you're looking super healthy. Well, um, I was 174 days at sea, which was a bit longer than I planned. And that was because I did a bit of damage to the boat and I was going more slowly. But I kept going because that was the plan to sail to uh, La Sable de Lon and um, I had the, the stop. So I was just determined to, uh, to complete the trip. So I, um, I basically ran out of food and um, I still had some dehydrated food left over from the previous um, half of the race. So I dug that up and I was eating my way through that. And it had, you know, there's a lot of kilojoules in that food, but when you're just eating dehydrated food, there's only so much you can eat. And uh, when I arrived, I was surprised. I, I, was down to the, I was down to 99 kilos, which was the weight I was when I was 18 years old when I joined the Navy. So it's, I think it's pretty amazing that I can get down to my... Uh, you know, maybe I should get married. You know, people try and reduce weight when they get married and, and say, hey, I'm down to my 18-year-old 18, 18 weight here. So. Goodness me, that, that's going to be a whole other story to share. I'm rapidly putting it all back on since I arrived. <laughs> well, you've earned it. You said your boat was damaged. How did that happen? And, and let's hear about your trip. Yeah, well, I got... I got smashed up a bit going around Cape Horn um, in I had like four consecutive storms and um, some of them are quite violent and there was sort of some sort of like cosmetic damage you know like just timber rubbing strike around the boat the boat just got picked up and thrown down and it just got splintered and it just disappeared Down below, my chronometer got thrown out of its gimbals um, and I was able to fix that subsequently. My cassettes and the cassette player were actually in tubs on the deck down below, but the motion was so violent, they got thrown from the floor, hit the ceiling, broke the plastic boxes. I had water down below, they're floating around. So I lost all my music and my, my cassette player because we're 1968, so that's that's the technology we were using. So I had had to then proceed for the next couple of months without any entertainment on board, and so I had to use the radio, and I was tuning into um, Falkland Island Radio and Radio Mardel Plata, and I was getting Radio New Zealand, uh, BBC World Service, BBC Radio 4. Do you have any recommendations from those stations, just in case... Any of us are ever stranded without access to modern entertainment. Falkland Island Radio on, um, I forget what it was, was fantastic. Uh, very quirky, couple of good announcers. I think they're probably all volunteers. And I really enjoyed it and they're quite eclectic. There was another radio station that was funny. And it was um, Hobart International Radio. Hobart International Radio is a quirky little station that just does a little transmission in Hobart irregularly. Hobart being the capital of Australia's island state, Tasmania. And But it also gets retransmitted from time to time through a station in the US on six or eight megs. And um, I actually, I was just spinning the dial and I came across it and they, they were playing an episode of Pigs in Space which was the Muppet 
thing and Miss Piggy and whatever, and it was just so funny. So I'm in the South Atlantic listening to Hobart International Radio, Pigs in Space, retransmitted through through uh, through a station in the US. Very, very funny. Well, we know it wasn't all smooth sailing and, and listening to Miss Piggy. We, we were listening in your, on your conversations with Don and could hear that you were having difficulty with the Cape. I've heard it called the Everest of Sailing. Could you tell us a bit more about how you traversed it? Yeah, look, um, I went through Le Maire Strait and um, I, I, I sort of came around and there was another storm forecast. And um, firstly, when I rounded Cape Horn, it was in the middle of the night. And you've got to understand... I didn't have, I don't have radar. I don't, you know, all I'm just navigating on, on a sextant site previously and my dead reckoning position and my echo sounder depth and my compass course. And um, I actually um, was following the 100 meter line on the chart to, to give me a line of position as best I could. And I rounded the horn, I thought I was, you know, about five to seven miles off. But on the tracker, I've subsequently seen that I actually passed two and a half miles off. So I was a bit closer than I um, I thought. But when I came around, my weather safety guy was saying, look, you actually need to go to the north for some protection. But the problem was I didn't really know where I was. And um, there were some islands there. And then I think, gee, you know, I'm not really comfortable with those positions of those islands. And so I'm forced, I've got to, a storm to the south of me that I'm trying to seek shelter from, but there are rocks to the north of me. The rocks won, so I stayed in the storm. So it meant that firstly, I was in the storm for quite a while. And then when I was really past and clear, I was heading north and trying to seek some shelter. But there was another storm forecast like a day later, and it was gonna be more severe. And had I have continued to go east around the island. It's, it used to be called Staten Island. It's now called Isla de los Estados. And I just thought, look, that, I think that's a little dangerous. And I thought the alternative of going through Le Maire Strait, although challenging, was actually a more sensible move. So I went through, so I had to, firstly, I couldn't go through at night, so I had to slow down and loiter. And then you have to wait for the tidal stream because I'm a low powered vessel and you need to, this is sort of like between the Pacific and the Atlantic oceans. And it's a little straight, you know, that's whatever, 10 or 15 miles wide. And the stream goes through one way and the other. And with the weather, you've got to try and um, pick your time so the stream helps you. But there's also some uneven areas of seabed and you get overfalls when you get the wind and the, the, um, the stream against each other. Anyway, so I, I, I went through and I actually got the car going through and I, when you look at the subsequent weather, it was almost like being in the eye of a cyclone because you've got a storm to the north and a storm to the south and I'm in the middle and um, it, was, it was very light. And then as I got the, the stream picked me up and swept me out um, into the Atlantic and I, I went through some overfalls that I didn't plan to go through, but it was out of my control. I just being swept through and it was quite violent. It was like being in a washing machine and I actually went into a force 10 gale into the North Atlantic and then had to continue to drive north to get away from the land because that was the hazard. Wow. How do you deal with that on board? What do you do in these conditions? Do you just have to take shelter? It got to the stage whereby it was it was very it would have been hazardous to leave the cockpit. And so I reefed the two headsails as best I could. Reefing being a process to reduce the area of the sail in use to stabilise a boat during heavy winds. And the mainsail, I, I got it down to three reefs, but then it became so violent outside, I just said, look, I'm just going to keep sailing like this, which was the best sort of decision in, in the circumstances. So I had the sail eased as much as I could, and it's fully battened, so it didn't flap too much. But the boom was in the water, the end of the boom the whole time, because the boat just healed over you know, 40, 50 degrees. And to take the load off, I took the bang off. And so it's just there and we just powered on through. And uh, at the end of it, I thought, wow, it's a tough little boat because I'm normally quite a conservative sailor. Mm. We sailed it really hard in those circumstances. And it was well prepared. And I sort of thought, oh, the boat can obviously take a lot more than I can. <laughs> yeah. 
But I didn't want to go up forward to get it down and put the trisel up because I thought that was too hazardous. So I had to sail with what I had. And uh, it was a lot of sail and it was a, it was pretty exciting, really. And so when it all happened, I sort of thought, well, that was a good experience. <laughs> Most people listening to this podcast would probably be terrified if they were put into these situations. How do you feel in these moments? Are you in control? Are you logical? Or are you fearful second to second? Apprehensive of the next storm, thinking, my God, that's unfair. I want to get out of this one. (laughs) I want a bit of peace. But in the here and now, when the storm is there, to be honest, you're just you're just doing what you can do. And also, you've got a um, you've got a bottom up view. Um, you're there doing it, living it. And the top down view that others have, looking at the weather forecast or whatever, I didn't have that information. So I'm just living in what I can um, um, see and whatever. And to be honest, it's actually not that bad. When, 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 even when it's really violent, that doesn't mean it's violent all the time. You, you know, in some ways it's quite majestic and whatever. But what tends to happen is you think you're going okay and you relax your guard and all of a sudden a seat bigger than you expect come and gets you at an angle you weren't prepared for and knocks you around. So it's, so it's, it's these little incidents that are the problem. But every wave that passes you, it's not that every wave is dangerous. You, the boat does its thing, it does its thing. But when it's really blowing hard um, and the water is being, the spray is being whipped off the sea and it's just like, you know, like a snowstorm, um, you know, you sort of think, oh, my God. <laughs> so aside from the Cape, what about other challenges? How did the water supplies hold up and... And, and did you have another barnacle debacle? The water was um, better managed this time. And, um, yeah, I, I caught more. I think I was more... Well, when, I, when you get to the tropics, you, um, you, you catch water and, uh, and through the doldrums. And also, I was, I was more active in, in doing it and, 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 and prepared. You can't wait for it to rain to set up to collect rain because before, by the time you set up, it, it's passed. The barnacles, I was partly successful there. Um, we put copper coat on, which is a different type of anti-foul and whatever. Um, but I still, and there wasn't much fouling on the hull with, with normal weed and those type of things. But I did get some gooseneck barnacles um, down the back end. And um, um, I think the copper coat needs to be, the hull needs to be wiped down occasionally every couple of months. And um, I didn't get over the side until the near the equator um, because I got a rope around the propeller and and, and, and I, that happened in just before Le Maire Strait and um, so I um, I couldn't so that I dragged that for like 4,000 miles and then once the water warmed up and I was in the doldrums I got under the boat swam under and and cut it and whatever but even that was quite tricky because you, you think oh, the boat's calm and the water's flat, but it's not. The boat's, there's there's still waves and the boat's pitching and you're going under this thing and the stern's going up and down and up and down and you're trying not to get hit by the boat. So it's actually a bit tricky, And um, but I, I freed it. Um, and um, I did note then there were some barnacles, but and I should have probably wiped them off, but I was just pleased to get back on board. <laughs> <laughs> And after 170 days at sea, what was it like to arrive in France? Oh, when I came in, it was fantastic. So a number of boats sort of came out to meet me and there were people standing on the on the pier head and whatever, blowing their, their trumpets and things. There was actually um, a couple who are the... Um, um, the parents of, of one of, the, of, of um, a, a previous Fugro staff member that came from France to do work experience with us and subsequently we recruited her. Well, her parents came down and they had the big orange thing on going coconuts for the best. And that was her <laughs> mum, Anne, and uh, her husband, uh, Benoit. It was just wonderful to have that type, type of um, um, thing. 
as I was coming up the channel, there was a boat playing um, Advanced Australia Fair. And when I came alongside, they were playing Men at Work, Land from Down Under, which is Coconut's <laughs> song. And that's sort of funny because that, that had been played during things before the race and that had been filmed. And there's a GGR movie coming out um, of the last race. And some of the snaps of, of Coconut are in there and the Men at Work music's in the background. Well, Don, Don's had to pay 20,000 US dollars royalty for that little snippet of music <laughs> behind Coconut. And they, they, it was too important that they couldn't take it out. It was oh, a part no. of the movie. So look out for the movie, listen for Men at Work, and think that the poor race organiser had to pay 20 grand to retain that, uh, uh, that little snippet on my cassette. So you arrived on shore with a hundred days before the next race. You're fully involved in repairs now. What are, what are your lessons learnt? Is there anything that you will do differently? Um, look, I, um, I, I think it went pretty, pretty well. Look, I, um, I, I think your, your, your storm tactics um, mature as you go through more storms and you get more experience. And so rather than do these things for the first time, you know, you've, you've seen things before, you know, what works in it. So I, I think I'm getting, um, 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 you know, more mature in the, um, in the way I handle the boat in, in adverse weather. I think I, in general, I was sailing the boat faster this time than previously. Now, although on stats, I've I'm, I'm, traveled slowly, that was because I damaged the boat and just continued. I wanted to I wanted to complete the trip, and it, uh, the, the last quarter of the trip took inordinately long. But I think in general, I was I was sailing the boat faster and better than um, than previously. And you know, so previously, my, my previous best was 157 days at sea. I've now done 174 days at sea. So that's a total of 300. And, 10 days at sea, 310 days and nine hours it took me to circumnavigate the world, which is, sorry, 330 days and 10 and nine hours. So I was actually slower than the original guy to do it, Sir Robin Knox Johnson, but he's he's a hero and he's a sir and I'm just a guy doing it 50 odd years later. But it's sort of fun to do and, you know, you learn and whatever. And um, But, yeah, look, I'm, um, um, yeah, I'm not particularly competitive as far as the um, you know, number one, number two, number three uh, go. But look, I um, I was the sixth finisher of the GGR from 18 starters, and I was the uh, the first and only com com um, person in Chichester class. So I won the Chichester class. So uh, that's pretty neat, and it sort of suits, you know, I, when people say, what's your style? I say, well, it's coconut style. You know, it's a little bit different from everyone else. And it's sort of um, consistent with that. Well, that was the last time out. What are your current repairs focused on for the next time? Right. Well, I had to repair the um, the, the rubbing strike. And so I, um, I couldn't get uh, people to do the timber work. So what I did was... I used the broken bits from the back of the boat to repair the front of the boat, and I've now modified the back of the boat that it doesn't have a rubbing straight. So I sanded it and filled it and sanded it and filled it and painted it, and so we've now got a beautiful rubbing straight that's been repaired on the first half of the boat, and now we've just got orange um, uh, ship sides the whole way back. And it looks quite good. So I was able to do it myself with what I had in the time available. The engine was a 50-year-old diesel, and um, it became unreliable. And um, to um, I was quite fond of it because it was just an old engine. But um, to be honest, to do this type of thing, and it is there as a safety device. You, what do you want an engine for in a yacht race? Well, it's a safety device. And it also can be used to charge the batteries in the event that your solar fails or you don't get sun. Um, really, uh, to keep persevering, I think was an, would be an error. And um, so I'm getting a new engine, and um, the old one came out with much difficulty, and the new one's sort of been in for a trial fit once or twice and whatever. So hopefully we're done at the end of this week or early next week with the new engine. And then the rigging, I, I destroyed my, my two headsail foils where the, the headsails go, and my, my um, 
my, my force day and my inner force day. So they've been they've been um, ordered and they're here and they're ready to go in, but that can't be done until the boat's back in the water. It's a safety thing. You can't go up the mast with the boat in a shipyard. It's much safer to do it in the water and you can set it up properly. So it's just a matter, and it's just a um, hundred days isn't enough really from the starting point that I had considering the damage that I did. We're doing the best we can, and, and um, whether I get to the pre-race in Gijon is probably 50-50, but getting to the start line, yeah, 99% sure I will do that. Um, but the, the problem is, is when you're doing such thing, you know, putting a new engine in this and that and the other, my ability to test it all before the race is a bit limited. You know, you might say, well, you, everything's well tested, you've gone halfway, you've, gone, you've just circumnavigated the world. I go, yeah, but I destroyed the boat in doing it and I'm rebuilding it in a short amount of time and I, I need to test the rebuild. So there's a bit of risk associated with that. Um, but look, we, we can do the best we can and, you know, I'm reasonably relaxed that I have sailed around the world now, although it was with one stop and, and it was that it took, you know, almost four years and it's probably I'm the slowest person to complete a yacht race ever, which is pretty neat and um, the winner of Chichester class, which is pretty neat. And um, we'll do the best we can here and I'll get as far as I can. And um, yeah, so, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's um, a matter of uh, just, just keeping on going. And, you know, adventures are like that. It's a, yeah. an activity with an unknown outcome. And, um, and part of the interest is that it's difficult and you've got all these challenges and whatever. And, you know, we'll uh, we'll try and do it again and try and do it better than last time. But we'll, whatever we do, we'll do. Mark Sinclair, adventurer extraordinaire. Good luck with your coming journey and, and hopefully we'll hear from you sometime next year. Thanks, John. It's, it's always a great joy. And uh, I, I really like the Planet Beyond podcasts. I think they're really interesting. And... Um, if it gives someone some food for thought, then that's a very good thing. As you're listening to this, Mark has been on his journey for almost a month. Check the show notes for how you can follow this great adventure. Versatility in the face of the unknown is something we all need, and we can take inspiration from Mark's approach. The most we can all hope for, like Mark, are fair winds and following seas. This has been the Planet Beyond podcast. Until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>